Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. So we find about the difficult task of measuring and analysing stuff at a cosmic scale. Now, we're trying to find dark matter scattered across the universe, which might involve staring at the gaps between two galaxies using a lensing technique. But similar strange techniques can help us find out what will happen when our sun dies. Plus, trying to make LIGO gravitational wave detectors more accurate might involve tiny, tiny laser beams. Now, you might be familiar with the equation E equals mc squared. This famous formula describes the interconnection between energy and mass. And that idea, this connection between energy and mass, makes a pretty important role in terms of understanding how our universe functions. And this is a big area of concern for cosmologists, because if you add up everything that we see, everything around us, and build models based on that, everything that we can measure with a telescope or radio frequencies or looking at the cosmic radio background radiation, you add up all of those things, you only get to, well, 5% of the total matter and energy that the universe would need to not just completely spin apart with galaxies flying away from each other at massive speeds instead of rotating in a stable orbit as they do right now, or stars leaping away from their systems. So in order to balance all of these equations, in order to make our universe not fly apart at tremendous speed, there needs to be another 95% of mass and energy out there. The problem is, we can't find it. And not just that we can't find it, we literally have pretty much no idea what could be causing it. Now, Einstein himself came up with a fudge called the cosmological constant, a factor that was added in. He called it his greatest mistake, because it didn't make any sense. I mean, he was just adding something to balance the equations, and he wrote it off. And scientists as well have been searching for an answer to why or how we have all this mysterious force holding our universe together. And part of that, scientists believe, after much reconsideration, is dark matter and dark energy. And the reason why it's called dark matter is because, well, we can't see it with telescopes. We can't infer anything about it. We know it has to be there. This extra matter has to be there in order to balance the equations. But If it exists, it must barely interact with anything, what we call baryonic matter and radiation, except by gravity. Now, that means potentially it's something hanging out there, perhaps some kind of elementary particle that we don't know about yet. Uh, In particular, perhaps a weakly interacting but massive particle called a WIMP, or a gravitationally interactive massive particle, uh, a GIMP. Something out there that doesn't really respond to very much, is very dense, but uh, does interact with things via gravity. There's a lot of different observations trying to go and figure out what exactly dark matter is. Another part of the equation is balanced by dark energy, and together these two, dark matter and dark energy, add up for that missing 95%. But this week we're going to focus on dark matter briefly, and look at one experiment to try and predict, model, and study potential sources of dark matter. Now, all the way back in uh, 1974, Stephen Hawking, a famed scientist, put together a couple of different theories, particularly around the formation and existence of primordial black holes, born shortly after the Big Bang. 
One of his theories was perhaps this could make up a large fraction of the elusive dark matter that scientists are trying to hunt for. Not a bad theory if it is out there, because as we know, 80% of the matter in the universe is made up of this dark matter, and if these are these primordial black holes uh, holding things together, acting as huge mass sinks, then well, that would help solve the problem. The problem is, we every time we try and hunt for dark matter, we can't find it. And that means we need to reconsider and look at a different theory and a different theory. The primordial black hole theory has been out there as an idea that maybe there's some of these tiny, smaller than a tenth of a millimeter, primordial black holes, singularities in space-time that basically suck and act as huge matter concentrators. Now, a team of researchers published this paper in the journal Nature Astronomy, led by researchers from the Kavli Institute, uh, including Hiroko Nikura and Professor Nako Yasuda. It included researchers all over the world, from Japan, India, United States. And they've used gravitational lensing to look for these primordial black holes somewhere scattered between Earth and the Andromeda Galaxy. Now, the gravitational lensing technique is basically the bending of light around a massive star's path. Effectively, if there's a huge, dense object, like a really big star, or maybe like a black hole, then the light will bend around it, because space-time is distorted by this huge, heavy object in the middle. And gravitational lensing techniques are pretty complicated and rare to use, but can be done. But gravitational lensing events are particularly rare because it requires, for example, in this observation, a star in the Andromeda galaxy, and something in between acts as the gravitational lens. So the observer on Earth needs to be looking at a particular star and needs to have something right in the middle of the pathway in order to capture it. So in order to maximise the chances of catching one of these rare instances in time, Researchers used the Hyper-Subprime Cam digital camera on the Super Telescope in Hawaii. We can take a whole image of the entire Andromeda galaxy in one shot. Now, taking into account how fast these primordial black holes are expected to move across interstellar space, the team took multiple images to try and catch the flicker of a star, or any star in the Andromeda galaxy, as it brightens just for a period of a brief few minutes due to the gravitational lensing effect. But from over 190 consecutive images of the galaxy taken over seven hours during one clear night, they looked for any possible gravitational lensing events, no matter how small, all the way across the entire Andromeda galaxy. And the results weren't exactly as they expected. Well, the researchers went into it, saying if dark matter was part of these primordial black holes, given its mass, then you could expect to see about a thousand events by studying the whole Andromeda galaxy for that period of time. The reality was they only found one case, which means that if the primordial black holes do exist, then they're not dark matter sinks. There would be only 0.1% of all dark matter mass, so that would make it very unlikely that this event hypothesis is true, because otherwise the Andromeda galaxy and the Milky Way galaxy would be flung apart from each other. So something has to be sitting there in between, helping add mass to suck these things together, and that's clearly not the case. Now, the researchers are planning more observations of the Andromeda Galaxy. Perhaps binary black holes discovered by the gravitational wave detector LIGO are in fact primordial black holes. Maybe there are different sources out there, but at least this area of Hawking's theory of primordial black holes between galaxies has been ruled out at least for now, or at least between Andromeda and the Milky Way. Puts cosmologists back to the drawing board, trying to figure out how can we measure something that we can't see. Turns researchers to look in new and more interesting directions. This is some great research from the Kavli Institute for Physics and Mathematics of the Universe. 
recently published in the journal Nature Astronomy. Now, hunting for the mysteries of the universe is an important part of astronomy and cosmology. But another part is just trying to understand the basics. Well, we know that stars are born and that stars die. And that fact will continue to happen. We can see it happening as evidenced by happening with supernova and quasars in our sky. We can also see stars slowly fade out to become dwarf stars. And one of those fates will occur to our very own sun if humans are around to see that happen a billion years or so from now. But looking at the death of a star is also a great way to try and figure out and solve some of the mysteries and complications in physics. We can also learn some pretty hardcore and incredible stuff, which is exactly what some researchers from the University of Warwick have done. Now, orbiting around a white dwarf star about 410 light years away, scientists found something pretty unusual. Now, white dwarfs are the remains of stars, pretty much like our sun, that have shrunken down and burned up all their fuel. And what they do is, they, once they burn all their fuel and shed all their outer layers, they leave behind an incredibly dense core, which slowly cools and cools and cools over time. Now, this particular star that they're observing had shrunk so dramatically that any of the planetismals or exoplanets in orbit around the sun's original radius shrank and got distorted and destroyed by this as well, this huge change in flux and gravity. So scientists turned the Gran Telescopio Canaris in La Palma onto that object and tried to figure out what has been left behind in this white dwarf's wake. And the results are pretty incredible. And the reason we care about this is that five to six billion years from now, our sun will undergo the same fate. So learning what happens to these planets left in the wake of such a death of a star will tell us a lot about the future of our own solar system. So, with that in mind, scientists turn their eyes to what they call SDSSJ, a long string of numbers which relate to its coordinates. But effectively, it's an incredible fragment of a planet left behind the debris of what once was a much larger body. They call it a planetesimal. But it's actually still left chunks behind, still slightly orbiting that white dwarf star. At huge chunks what they estimate to be at least a thousand kilometers across, containing lots of elements like iron, magnesium, silicon, oxygen. Pretty much the four basic building blocks that made Earth and most other rocky bodies. And within that disk of dust and debris around the white dwarf star, they discovered a streaming gas from a solid body, like a comet's tail. So this planetary fragment is just eking out gas from its atmosphere, leaving behind this trail inside this debris disk, which is incredibly amazing to think about. Now, the challenge is, if this object, this planetesimal, had been entirely made of iron, it actually probably would have survived the death of the star, and it would have sunk into a lower, closer orbit to the star and been a solid object. But that's not happened in this case because it had a lot of different types of elements making it up. And that's leading to this particular behavior we see where they're just fragmenting apart. It's sinking slower and slower deeper into the gravitational well of the white dwarf. And leaking out all this big streamer of gas trailing behind it. Now, this is only the second time scientists have found one of these planetesimals left behind orbiting a white dwarf star. And it could only be found 
using very detailed and complicated spectroscopy, which is very different to the normal way that scientists have been finding it using, well, transit method of looking for an obscured object in front of the white dwarf. This relied on a much more nuanced method, spectroscopy, to analyse the elements left behind, but it's yielded some pretty incredible results. But by analysing this debris disk and looking at the elements inside it and finding this incredible trail, we found a clue to what may end up happening to our very own solar system. It's slowly being swallowed up and crushed down to small planetesimals that eek behind leaving streaks and trails in their wake in a protoplasmic disk around the white dwarf star. Now, that's interesting to think about, but there's a lot more objects out there in space, a lot more white dwarfs that scientists are hoping to study. Now, there's some great work published from University of Warwick researchers and astronomers in the journal Science. Back in 2015, scientists were able to work together to detect gravitational waves for the very first time. This was done by studying the radiation, the signals, the noise, all emitted from the collision of two black holes over a billion light years away. And that was an amazing discovery and an amazing piece of scientific research. But now, we need to figure out ways to refine those scientific instruments. Not so much now to improve the measurements that we've got, but to lead to the next generation of scientific instruments. LIGO is great, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, which is what was used for that discovery. It's a fantastic piece of equipment. But in order to improve LIGO and lead to the next generation of tests and potentially discoveries, scientists need to find a way to refine those techniques and build on them. And it's this kind of steady groundwork that is incredibly important for advancing fields like astronomy and cosmology. Because before you can make the huge discovery, you have to do the work to make the detector, the observatory, the tool that you're going to use to make your discovery. And in this case, scientists have outlined in the scientific journal Nature, researchers from the Louisiana State University Department of Physics and Astronomy, a new way of improving their measurements by devices like LIGO, to make them more accurate, to more sensitive, to tune out some of what they call back action, which would mean we have a much greater chance of looking for and finding gravitational waves, but we would perhaps not have to wait for an incredibly complicated situation like two black holes colliding. Now what these researchers, including Associate Professor Thomas Corbett, have done is develop a physical device that make it possible to observe, or to more accurately hear, quantum effects at room temperature. Now, the reason why it's often easier to measure quantum effects at very cold temperatures is because, you know, that sort of isolates it from everything else. But if you could get it to be able to be heard at room temperature, then you don't need so much complicated equipment to get to near zero, absolute zero. You could do it in more simple techniques, which would make observatories easier to run and easier to build. So they made miniature models of the detectors like LIGO, and they built these small physical devices to go with them. Now these interferometers are a very intricate piece of equipment. They consist of a single low-loss micro-resonator, basically a tiny mirror pad, which is about the size of a pinprick. It's suspended on a cantilever beam, and that cantilever beam is connected back to some monitoring devices. Now that cantilever beam and the mirror at the very end of it are shot at by a laser. 
laser directed at that mirror cause really, really small vibrations in the whole cantilever structure. Because as the mirror vibrates, being hit by a laser, it vibrates then on the beam. That enough causes enough vibration to generate a noise. Now this kind of gravitational wave interferometer uses just enough laser power to minimize the uncertainty caused by the signal, but not too much to be incredibly taxing from an energy perspective. The problem is you have to worry about lots of different kinds of noise and vibration. Thermal noise or vibration in the surface make all of this very difficult. All these kind of noises add up and they cloud your signal. This is referred to as the signal to noise ratio. So really you want to maximize your signal strength compared to your random noise sources around you. This could be from vibration in the earth or anything else that you could think of, even from quantum radiation pressure noise at ultra low frequencies, which can happen when you're running your laser beam at full power. So to improve noise reduction is incredibly important and it will enable devices like LIGO or the next generation of them to be more accurate and precise. But first, to eliminate noise, we need to be able to study it and understand it. And that's where these small devices come in. And it's a great way to be able to listen to the quantum vibration noises and figure out a ways to attenuate or alleviate them to make our instruments like LIGO much more effective. So this is some great work from Louisiana State University's Department of Physics and Astronomy, led by Associate Professor Thomas Corbett, and published in the journal Nature. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. Studying the universe requires ultra-precise measurement devices. That's what we found out about this week, whether it be ways to improve LIGO or ways to find out what's going on with dark matter. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.